Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. As always, I am your host, Claire Watkins, joined this week by Jeff Kasouf of Obviously Equalizer. And I know you're doing some stuff for ESPN down there. You are on the ground in Monterey, Mexico, watching the CONCACAF W group stage, which ended last night. We got the whole picture, which is kind of funny. We had one match day last week. We have the whole picture of the group stage tonight or today. How's it going, Jeff? How are you hanging in there after watching a whole bunch of soccer games? (laughs) Yeah, doing well. Excited. First time uh, in Mexico, actually. So, and first oh, time nice. traveling quite a bit. So, um, yeah, it was good to experience, uh, you know, uh, a pretty good crowd finally, really, in mm-hmm. this tournament. Yeah, and and Monterey Monterey seems seems beautiful. It seems like a, a fabulous place to take in take in a soccer match. So we're going to start there. Actually, we're going to start with the end because that's sort of the the main top talking points of of these next couple of days especially before the semifinal um semifinal games on Thursday we'll go back and i think do a little bit of analysis of the US's game against Jamaica just because i do think that's worth looking at as well but let's talk about the big storylines right so we have the table right we have the final standings of the group stage and i'm going to run through those real quick and then we'll talk about the United States Mexico decider that we all watched last night so The U.S. wins Group A with nine points in three games. Jamaica gets the other automatic qualifying spot out of Group A with their win against Haiti on Monday. Haiti gets third. They will be going on to the Intercontinental Playoff. Mexico is in fourth with no wins and no goals, ultimately, at the end of the group stage. In Group B, Canada, same as the U.S., nine nine points from three games, three wins, Uh, Costa Rica gets the other automatic qualifying bid from Group B. Panama will be going to the Intercontinental Playoff. And Trinidad and Tobago similarly struggled uh, in the group stage. No wins, um, no goals. So let's talk about the big game that we all thought would be. And and maybe let's start with this. Let's start with the atmosphere because I'm watching this game, right? Mexico is going into this match needing a win to even have a shot at, at the intercontinental playoff and in kind of a cruel twist of fate, if they had won by even one goal, it worked out in the other game that they would have been in third. It feels a little bit like, you know, the U S isn't really pushing on the gas pedal. They have their eyes already kind of on the semifinals, but the atmosphere was great. It felt like an important game. And there were moments, right. Where it seemed like the young, relatively uncapped U S was a little shook, right? Yeah, felt that way in the stadium on on all accounts. I think you know the the attendance at this tournament has been disappointing up until Monday. Um, you know, finally we saw a crowd of twenty thousand at, at Estadio Universitario, and and you know I wouldn't call it a hostile crowd toward the U.S. in the way I, I might have expected. You know, where maybe a, a U.S. men's game at Azteca historically, things like that, um, games like that where you know th- there's some real bad blood that that you can right sort of it didn't palpably... feel like there was animosity it was just that the crowd wanted mexico to win yeah. right yeah, <laughs> yeah it was the, right. yeah pro pro mexico crowd yeah, yeah. there were there were light boos you know throughout the match as the u.s retained possession mm-hmm. um but but even as like anecdotally the loudest cheer of warm-ups was for alex morgan being called sure. in the lineup so mm-hmm. um but you know it was a crowd that like i, I mean i wrote this field like it was really trying to will its home side to anything. Like, I mean, they would get back on the ball at midfield and appear to be able to turn into space and, you know, the volume would pick up. They just wanted something. And, you know, they, they the shutout by the, the scoreless game at halftime is, mm-hmm. is obviously a positive for Mexico going into the half like that. Um, but, you know, really nothing going forward until those final minutes, they were almost almost energized even more so after the red card, which, you know, we, we can talk about, but um, you know, it was um, I would say, unfortunately for Mexico, I think the crowd, the crowd is to some degree what we expected and hoped for the context of it, as you kind of alluded to, not, you know, not what we thought it would be with, we thought Mexico qualifying on home soil that they would have taken care of some business before this game. Um, But I, I do think it was, 
Um, and I'm still trying to get some ideas from on the ground here, which I think in basic terms has been kind of a lack of marketing and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. but a little bit too little too late from, right. from the locals, um, you know, where 5,000 or so uh, at these games when Mexico was struggling and losing to opponents, we didn't think they would, um, you know, it, it was, this was really the last ditch effort and, and um, was always going to be a... <laughs> a miracle of miracles. They've won one out of the 42 meetings now, but um, you know, the fact, as you said, that Jamaica was able to do what they did to Haiti, which I was surprised by mm-hmm. um, until the final minutes, until Christy Mewis scores in the final two minutes of the game, Mexico has a shot to still make the global playoff. Right. Um, and let's talk, let's talk about the game now just a little bit on its own, because I think there are interesting things to look at from both Mexico and the U S's perspective. Um, you're right. They make it to halftime nil nil, right? Which is marked progress from, from their prior two games. However, I mean, I'm watching it from home and, and we'll get into kind of how uninspiring the U.S. looked, but it felt to me like, yes, you have to start from the vantage point of your Mexico of not conceding, but it felt like that was the whole game plan a little bit was they did sit back. They didn't push forward a ton. Like you said, the urgency really picked up almost after the late goal. I I was expecting maybe a little bit more energy going forward from Mexico, though. I understand why they were concerned that that would open things up. And once you open things up against, as you mentioned, Alex Morgan, that's not necessarily going to go your way. Did it seem like Mexico had the next step plan other than just, don't let the U.S. turn this into a game state where they're ahead early? No, not in short, no. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, Cervantes up top, um, really, really on an island. I mean, there were a couple points in this game where, um, you know, really it was it was her and four U.S. defenders at, at minimum and, and maybe a hopeful ball that was played in a space to nobody and, you know, Naomi Gurma or, or Becky Sauerbrunn just kind of casually can, can pick it up and play Casey Murphy or turn around and, and, you know, reset possession. So um, I, yeah, until that um, you, you see teams and, and it becomes a little cliche that like they get a little bit galvanized by a red card, um, mm-hmm. not to, not to jump ahead, but that's really, you know, the point at which we finally saw something of, of any um, real tangible value, you know, going forward from, from Mexico right. um, was, was after that. But, you know, first half, I think, um, you know, you've got, you've got the free kick um, around the 30 minute mark. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think, I, you know, we had fewer replays than you probably did at, at home. I'm assuming anyway, in, in stadium, but I thought it looked to me like there was a question of a handball in that 30th minute on, on Emily Sonnet. I don't know. Yeah, how much there was. Got. Yeah. Um, um, I don't think it, not enough, I think to go to VAR, uh, but yeah, there was. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, otherwise, you know, I think the one main opportunity that comes to mind would be Maria Sanchez in a couple minutes before halftime does get a little bit of space. And then Kelly O'Hara, who I thought was, you know, maybe along Naomi Gurma, the, the U.S.'s best player on the night mm-hmm. um, puts a block in and, and that shot doesn't even, you know, make it into the 18 almost. So yeah, um, maybe that's a good segue though, because Mexico ends this game with one shot on goal. And I believe that shot itself was a little bit weak. I think uh, Casey Murphy was able to to handle it pretty easily. Um, the U S also doesn't end with that many shots on goal. I think they had six off of 15 total shots. Uh, it felt like this was not a game with a lot of shooting. It felt like there were a lot of attacking ideas that never, landed on really kind of a good final ball, especially from the U S. So let's talk about the U S side of it. Um, I'll give you my perspective and then you can tell me what you think. So part of the reason why I did not quite see the miracle for Mexico is that it felt kind of player for player. Like they were really struggling to possess despite wanting to, they were sitting off a little bit more obviously in a defensive structure, but Anytime they themselves would force a turnover, even if a United States player made a mistake, that United States player could win the ball back pretty much immediately. It seemed to me like those 1v1 possession battles were just not going Mexico's way. However, once the U.S. would get the ball and would start progressing it, they just didn't really have very interesting possessive or attacking ideas. It was a lot of balls in the air. 
It was a lot of sending things into Alex Morgan, who at times was triple teamed. Um, it, it just didn't seem like the U.S. either had a desire or a real plan to to get that first one on the board. Obviously, they hit the post. You know, they, there are opportunities, and the U.S. are always going to get opportunities, but we never saw a second gear from them attacking wise. And, and that has to be disappointing, right? When they're given that much time on the ball that they couldn't come up with something. Right. Yeah. I, I do think Mexico's back line um, really handled Alex Morgan pretty well on the night. Um, you know, I, th- I think that you mentioned, you know, Mitch purse hits the post in the 15th minute, uh, you know, plenty of maybes and, and there always will be in, in, in our sport, I guess. But, you know, I think that is one where, not a floodgates opening, but, you know, shifts the dynamic of the game, obviously, then, you know, Mexico has to chase. And, um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, the, the, some of the standout things for me attacking wise um, and, you know, unfortunately these, these press conferences are a little bit absurdly short um, afterwards. Mm -hmm. So we, there were not a lot of tactical questions post game. And I guess that'll have to be saved for, for later in the week. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a little bit curious on the thinking from Lakonanovsky, and, and uh, hopefully we can get some insight. I mean, there were a couple of things in this game that I think were, um, if not new, maybe more pronounced. And, and there was certainly a left side overload for large stretches of the game where Ashley Sanchez would, would float out there. Um, Kelly O'Hara and Emily Son had kept switching sides, and, and mm-hmm. O'Hara was out there at the time when – she and Sanchez combined to, to then serve that cross to purse. Um, and, and I think that was, so, so oftentimes, especially from the vantage point we had, which was, you know, dead center high up, which was, you know, really good for tactically speaking. Um, mm-hmm. The U S was sitting four, often five, just, just flat across Mexico's line. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think one by intent of, of needing to do that to, to, to break down, you know, pressure, sorry, to break down these, you know, this block, but, um, but also, you know, we've seen this before where that has a danger of becoming a little bit stagnant. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that it did oftentimes um, on Monday. Yeah. I would say sitting at home. I mean, as we know, with the, with the state, with the state of the group, when the U S went into this game and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like condone it, but the U S did not need to run a lot in this game. They, a draw would have put them where they wanted to be. Right. They, they were in a good position to be able to rotate. And, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit right now as well, because this war of attrition of, of this U S women's national team roster is getting kind of ridiculous at this point. Right. they, are missing what six, seven, eight uh, starters or or people who have been in the mix in the past, even before this roster gets named. Now Ashley Hatch has a strain. They're bringing Sam Coffey in just to get more U.S. experience. Um, I, I saw some frustration with the rotation that we've seen, but for me, I mean, it's kind of like the people didn't like that with the Olympics either. But this actually kind of recreates the Olympics we're having this conversation two games after we had the conversation one week ago, right? These games are really, really close together and the U S is not being left with a ton of options just based on who's available. Emily Fox is in COVID protocol. One has to wonder if they might not have more players in COVID protocol by Thursday, right? With just the nature of how that works, how much of this is outside of Vladko Andonovsky's control, just considering like, have we seen a U.S. roster this injured or or unavailable we haven't in a while right yeah i think this is a a very important and and kind of nuanced conversation to um to to the bigger picture because you know i I do think um there there is there's a lot out there right in terms of how how qualifying has been going how even sort of vlaco's tenure has been going um you know i i think it's it's fair to point out that a couple things. Firstly, what you're saying. I mean, the injuries have stacked up. Um, certainly, is is a role. I mean, counter to that maybe is, hey, it's a very deep team or, or deep mm-hmm. pool and program. Absolutely fair. Um, and, and I think you know you could also say, hey, we're having this conversation about some struggles or or some issues that we see, and and maybe they're similar to the ones we talked about you know, a week ago against Haiti or a couple months ago and, and, you know, the Czech Republic game and, and even a Columbia game, you know, I think those are all fair. I, I do think, you know, there's, there's a lot of hot takes 
um, that I've seen out there. And, and I mean, you know, it, it has to be stressed. Like part of this is, this is the, a two time world cup defending world cup championship team Mm -hmm. that is, is undergoing a complete generational change, which, you know, he's been tasked with um, really since he took over and and the timeline of that has shifted because of the world, but um, you know, he's been tasked with that. And, and yeah, these are some of these players have two, three caps starting Mm -hmm. in, in a world cup qualifying game. And that's not, it can't be used as an excuse, but it has to be used as context. And, you know, I think that that, that probably gets lost a, a little bit where, you know, you look at this is a team that like the core of this team has existed and and carried it for quite literally a decade in which they went to a World Cup final, followed it up by winning an Olympic gold medal, mm-hmm. then won two straight World Cups. And, you know, then the Olympic issues, I guess you could call them in between on those couple. Um, but, you know, a core that won two World Cups and Olympics and went to another World Cup final the only ones remaining, there's a handful of those players remaining right. in, in this squad and, and, you know, only a few that even played prominent roles. So, um, you know, the idea that any of this is going to be super smooth immediately. I, I mean, it's, I think, I think fans see it as a cop-out to say, this is a struggle, a, an attrition, as you said, now to make sure that it is not next summer because mm-hmm. the feeling is that, well, it's, you know, some people feel it's so, bad perhaps right now that how could it be better next summer but that's the that's the plan and the point i mean right. certain, you know so i think i think there's a lot there yeah yeah i think maybe you talked about the timeline shifting because of the world i think that's an element of it as well right i mean in between 2015 and 2019 this sort of second cycle of jill ellis's tenure they crash out of 2016 right they don't get a medal at all and then 2017 was like the deep experimental period, right? And we remember the growing pains of that, which culminated in multi-goal losses, right? They were losing games in 2017, which Ellis has said later that she thought was healthy for the team. Um, you don't really get a chance to do that as much when you have this truncated cycle of you had a year in between the World Cup and the Olympics where very little happened, right? Right. They carry sort of this steady veteran group into 2021 to play the Olympics. They get third. Doesn't go that great, but certainly not a huge disaster, better than 2016. But now you don't get that deep experimental period. You don't get that free year. They're in World Cup qualifying. They're going to be playing in a World Cup in a year. So it is a very specific thing that Andonovsky has to do. And like you said, it doesn't. it's not an explanation for why they lumped balls into the box against Haiti did much better against Jamaica and then did the exact same thing against Haiti that they did against Mexico. I don't know if we have the answers for that exactly, but it's a difficult thing they're trying to do just like winning the Olympics after the world cup is a difficult thing to do. No one has done it. So I I do think that it's healthy (laughs) to place side of kind of some context into it while still understanding that. Yeah, of course it needs to be better. And Andonovsky um, admitted that after after the game last night, which I thought was a fair thing to say. Nobody's watching this team now and thinking, yes, this team is going to win a World Cup next year. Um, so, but I do have one question. This is maybe the question to end this segment. Canada. Canada has has gone through a very, actually very similar tournament as the US. They have one game that they won 1-0 against Panama. Both teams advanced with the exact same goal differential. Why do you think it is that the U.S. is getting a lot of flack for the way they're negotiating through this group stage and Canada with very similar score lines has not? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'd be curious to see some of the, um, I, I admit I haven't seen a lot of these sort of local coverage, local being Canada of whether, how sort of heavy the criticism is there. But mm-hmm. um, I think there's two things. You, you get some leeway when you're, you just kind of won win. the Olympic gold, yeah, I think. I agree with that 100%. But, but I think, you know, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're leading me down this path, Claire, but I, I do think there's a difference in just kind of the way those two teams are covered often, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and um, that's, I think the, the criticism of the U S you know, I, I mean, the U S could win, six nil and they get criticized. Right. Right. I mean, that's how that is the standard of the program. I mean, I think that there's just different, 
um, different places in advancement of coverage. I mean, I look, there, there are very good people covering Canada. I'm not, I'm not taking that uh, away, but I, I think that there's like a level of um, attention on this team, obviously a historical standard that, that it's held to. Um, I think those are, you know, those don't necessarily exist for Canada. They haven't won a world cup. They just won their first Olympic gold medal. I think that there's a lot of grace that carries over from doing so last year. Would you, would you maybe say that it's expectation wise? And and this seems kind of obvious, but it's, it's a little bit easier to be on the rise than to be at, you know, having sat at the top for the last, you know, eight years. Is that kind of what you think it is? Yeah, that. And I mean, I just, you know, I'm not in Canada day to day, but I I know, you know, we have an idea of, I think there are just, there's a lot more media attention on this U.S. team than there is on the Canadian team, Canadian team in general. Uh, I think that's a fair statement without being, you know, I'm not degrading Canada in any way. It's just that this is a, the U.S. is a, a household team in this country, you know, and has been for quite a while with, with personalities that, you know, transcend beyond sport. And um, I think with that comes um, a scrutiny, you know, and, and I think like what we're alluding to here, it's not just like you and I getting on and talking about some of this nuance and, and really having a good conversation about it. It is mainstream. It's whoever dipping in and, you know, they come in for a game and they see a U.S. Mexico game or they see Haiti struggles and, you know, why is this team so bad? And, and that can kind of compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, maybe a, a difference. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe we're just negative Americans there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, possible. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I would say maybe one additional thing to that, having watched some of those games is I do think that Canada has looked better at, at times. Um, though I think some of their tactics similar to the U S didn't always work for this particular competition. They've run two sixes. I'm not entirely, so like, I'd like the U S and I actually will bring that up in the next segment, but this idea of loading the defensive midfield. I don't fully understand that in a CONCACAF group stage competition. Um, Some of their non goals have been slightly more spectacular, perhaps where you think, Oh, if they had just gotten a little bit more of a bounce, that would have been a great goal. I, I, I think that there are some feelings within Canada. They also are much closer to their, you know, strongest group than the U S is. And I think there's an element of that as well. They do have that gold medal winning group mostly intact. So, um, I think there are a lot of factors to it. And if us and Canada do meet in the final, I think that that will be a very big deal. And I think Canada has a great shot at it, but um, I I'm just, in, I'm always interested by the, the different levels of, of more just how things feel between the two programs rather than getting into the nitty gritty of, of the tactical stuff. So we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, and we're going to go back in time and talk the Jamaica game, because I think it is an important piece of context for the two games that surrounded it and maybe what we'll see against Costa Rica. Welcome to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I'm your host, Claire Watkins, joined this week by Jeff Kasouf. I'm going to do the thing I do at the beginning of this segment every single week. Please give us a rating and a review, a five-star rating. It helps people find us. Leave us a nice review. We might see it. We might tweet it. We might shout it out. Give us something nice to look at on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcast streaming. So I want to go back a little bit because... I do also, we talk about the feelings report, right? How, how things feel. I think the Mexico game and the Haiti game are also perhaps more criticized in the context of when the U S looks quite good, like they did against Jamaica. They looked very good against Jamaica. Um, and, and I have a couple of particular tactical questions, thoughts, whatever uh, about that. Um, one being the use of the six, So there's been a lot of conversation about how many sixes the U.S. brought, who they're developing for the role. Obviously, a lot of this is very much colored by the Tokyo experience where their lack of a defensive midfield presence was very much exposed. Now, I was a little bit concerned both against Haiti and against Mexico They play Andy Sullivan as a traditional number six. And then they kind of leave her on an island. It felt like 
in the games where they do play with Andy Sullivan in this defensive midfield role that people consider to be a more traditional one, then they stack, like you said, four or five up against the back line of the opposing team. And there's a lot of space between Sullivan and everybody else really limiting her effectiveness. Does it? So they're going to need a strong defensive midfield presence going forward in this group stage. When they looked the best was when they had Lindsay Horan doing that hybrid role against Jamaica. How much of that, Jeff, do you think is about the defensive approach perhaps of Mexico and of Haiti, who both who which did a very nice job and how much of it is they had didn't quite perfect how you get an Andy Sullivan involved in a CONCACAF group stage game. Yeah, I do think Jamaica was a little bit poor defensively as well in, in that conversation. Sure. Um, and, and maybe, you know, a good point to, to just throw in here um, from the newsworthy perspective of that Ashley Hatch injury, you know, really interesting to me that her replacement within the rules of this tournament is Sam Coffey, mm-hmm. excuse me, Sam Coffey, um, who is, is obviously young up and up and coming NWSL rookie holding midfielder, um, whether that's specifically for a tactic we're going to see in the next two games, or it's just getting her in this environment and maybe preparing her for next year. If she's ready, I, I don't know, but you know, I, I think that's an interesting wrinkle as part of this conversation, but um, you know, I, I've, I actually was an advocate pre-tournament for um, that Haran, Haran, uh, well, f- at least for Rose Lavelle, Ashley Sanchez as kind of a double 10 sure. when you have a team that's going to sit in on you because they are your two most creative players on this roster. Right. They can break down players 1v1 individually and, and typically give you something that, that others aren't going to give you in terms of breaking down players, especially centrally. Um, and then from there, it's, you know, who's your holding mid, so to speak, or hybrid holding mid. And, and um, I think in ways Haran makes sense there. I, I think, you know, th- there's a few different options, but um, you know, I think against Mexico too, part of the issue, and you mentioned Sullivan being on an Island. I mean, for some of the times, at least I, I saw there was an intentional use of um, Haran actually dropping deeper into like a left back space and, mm-hmm. Um, at least in the the times I'm remembering, because Sonnet and O'Hara did switch on a couple of occasions um, pretty intentionally as well, that it was Sonnet who would push on and, and essentially be that fifth on the front line. And Haran would collect the ball almost in that sort of traditional left back space. And um, but, yeah, I mean, similar to your point, there would be that gap. You'd have sort of five flat on the front line. You'd have the three remaining backs and then maybe Haran gets on the ball and and the only sort of central link there is Andy Sullivan. So, um, you know, I, I think that, I think the Jamaica game was a combination of things, including Jamaica, not, not playing super well, but, um, I think that, you know, part of it, um, and I'm not to change the subject, but just personnel wise, like mm-hmm. I think Naomi Gurma being in there, I thought she was very good and, and offers something, um, offensively from a center back position that yes. the rest of her, her colleagues, competitors in that role do not. And mm-hmm. and that's an additional layer of, you know, we talk about like, can Andy Sullivan or whoever the DM is be part of breaking down these teams? Um, Gurma, the way that she plays can be, is a part of that, that equation as well. Agreed. I agree with that. Uh, right. We talked about this. I talked about this with Jason a little bit last week, which is, um, the U S does have distributing center backs. They're just not with the team right now. Uh, Tierna Davidson has been that player in the past, right? Abby Dahlkemper has been that player in the past. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn at, at this point in her career is a little bit less of that. And, and Alana cook usually plays with a more distributive center back. She's more of a, of a cleanup kind of a player in, in my perspective. Um, so what Gurma especially brings to this particular group does feel uh, unique and could, I mean, I, at this point, I say this is the, you need this player with somebody else uh, against a, a prospective Canada because what she offered in those diagonal balls against Jamaica, what she offered in advancing the ball against Mexico is, I do think, different than what you get from an Alana Cook, Becky Sauerbrunn center back pairing. Um, so moving on to, and this is a question that I don't know the answer to, 
and and maybe you can give what you think. I don't know if anybody knows this answer, but you, we've, we've seen Sophia Smith play in all three games. And I, it seems like they've, they've done a very particular job of limiting her minutes in the first two so that she can be more of a catch-all as the tournament goes on. We're about to see probably the full burn, right? Which is that they're going to start pushing starters so they can get to that, you know, best 11 by the end of the tournament. Um, so for example, against Jamaica, she, she receives that diagonal ball from Naomi Gurma. She takes the defender on, on the dribble scores, a fantastic goal, right? She drives towards goal, just like we've seen her do in the end of USL so many times against Haiti and against Mexico. It felt like she was thinking cross first and, and not shot first or not drive towards goal first. Does that feel like she got different instructions or is that just where a player's mind is at in a particular game based on what she's seeing from a defense? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I do think, you know, there is, um, there's an element of overthinking things sometime. And, and and I don't know, I don't know if that is necessarily what's happening in, you know, the case that we're talking about, but, you know, certainly a marked difference, as you said, I mean, the, the two goals against Jamaica, um, and, and they weren't limited to that. I mean, that was a 5-0 game that could have been worse. And, and most of that production, especially in that first half, was the right side. Sophia mm-hmm. Smith, Sophia Huerta combining, Naomi Gurma kind of distributing within that and had that first assist. Um, but, yeah, I have been surprised, and I think more so in the, the Haiti game. I think it was better better in the Mexico game than the Haiti game. And, and we're talking about this Jamaica game being the sort of those are bookending this Jamaica game, which was much better from the U S but right. um, you know, where, especially in that Haiti game, you know, Smith would um, take on a player or, or had space to take on a player and seem to kind of pull up. And, you know, that's not what we've seen from her with Portland where it's, it's instinctual that, you know, she can, I think she can beat anybody in the league. And, and certainly it's a league with um, while I would say there, there's some suspect defending sometimes in the NWSL, um, I, I think it's probably a better defensive setup than, than many of these teams that they're meeting in this tournament mm-hmm. uh, in Agreed. large part. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think certainly she will know and, and everybody will know that, that she can take on those players. Um, so why, why the variation? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, trying to get into a coach's mind and, and, you know, guess whether there has been some instruction on that front. I mean, the main thing that Vlako Nanovsky has said this tournament about Sophia Smith is um, it was between those games, first and second games, or maybe it was right after the second, but he was asked and he said, he kind of acknowledged that maybe the, the performance against Haiti was not what was needed or expected. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, you know, I told her regardless, like we're putting you back out there because we believe in you and you need to, you know, I want you to figure these things out. Um, so I, you know, that would suggest that there's at minimum, uh, you know, a confidence level being instilled from, from the coaching side. Um, but I mean, you know, you look at league form and there's, there's no need for a confidence boost. Right. So, um, I, I'm not sure it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to say without, you know, kind of being one of those things of being inside camp, but, um, certainly there's, there's a significant difference between, um, game two and games one, one and three, and also even just her league form. And, and that can be said for a number of players right now. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it goes back to that, the conversation we were having in the first segment, which is the, and, and we've mentioned this before and like, again, truncated schedule. This is Sophia Smith's first real full year with the first team, right? She was injured in and out of 2020. She does not make the Olympic roster in 2021. Uh, and, and so now she is the, <laughs> the main focal point with Macario out of this attack. So yeah, maybe we do need to be more patient with it, right? It's, it's one thing to do it in the league and it's another thing to do it for the United States, especially in very different circumstances than you're used to. And so, yeah, if there's overthinking happening, Sure. I think that part of it probably, I mean, it is a coach's job to get a a player through that, but I think that we're seeing some of that. I mean, we saw a little bit with, with Pew, even I think in the first two games, just over cooking it a little bit, the runs weren't always quite perfect or the touches weren't exactly right. 
Uh, so they're working through that too. And that's kind of like you were saying where the experience is valuable in addition to the results. And that's sort of the difficult thing that they're doing right now. I saw some criticism obviously on the broadcast saying this isn't the time for experience. This is the time for world cup qualifying and Olympic qualifying. And I agree with that, but I also don't think the U S has a choice. And so I do think that's part of what we're seeing here as well. Um, all right, next question. Ashley Hatch gets hurt. She's out. They now have one true number nine in Alex Morgan. They have two more games left and and they don't really have a great replacement. We saw Trinity Rodman go in as the number nine a little bit. Uh, We saw Taylor Korniak get slotted in there at the, at the end of the Mexico game. Um, They're not going to do this obviously, but (laughs) does this roster at this point, not look a little bit four, four, two ish to you maybe to get the right playmakers on the field. It, it seems like they are married to the four, three, three. And we, we saw more of a straight four, three, three against Jamaica, some more of a four, two, three, one against Mexico. But from what I'm seeing for the players that are, are a little bit hot right now, I'm like, well, malleability in the formation might not be the end of the world. Right. My gut is to disagree with you, but I'm intrigued right. who your, who your four, four, two would be. So I'm, I guess I guess it's more, it is more just looking at the way that they're playing in the attack, which is that they're not progressing the ball through the middle. They're, they're sending it out Mm -hmm. wide and they're sending balls in. Right. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a bit of a hyper fixation on that central forward. Um, Right. And so it's more to me, if you're talking about dual tens, right. And maybe it doesn't actually have to be a, a four, four, two, but more just letting the, the wingers drift centrally more often, letting truly two number tens play up top. Maybe you do only need, right, the one number six. So maybe I'm talking myself out of it, but <laughs> it's, more, it's more just you can still play it with a four, three, three, but it just feels like the, the expectation right now is so focused on getting the ball centrally in the box that it seems like unnecessary and an unnecessary style. And maybe what I'm saying is that they could just have a little bit more freedom within the formation that they're playing, which I do think we saw a little bit against Jamaica. So maybe my question for the counterpoint is when you've got someone packing the middle of the box like that, how is it that you're able to sort of take that space? Cause I think they're taking the space outside. They're taking the space out wide and sending Mm -hmm. the ball in. Are there better ways to exploit that? If you have a team, let's, let's maybe start previewing Costa Rica a little bit, right? right? So they're going to play Costa Rica in the semifinal. I'm sure they have to like their chances just sort of historically, mm-hmm. probably expecting another very, or Costa Rica is going to attempt a, a very defensive game to start out. What would you tell the team in terms of how you would want the attack to move against what you're probably expecting to be another low block? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I always try to, it's like fascinating because I feel like this has been, you know, consistent conversation since that 2016 failure in the Olympics, right. It's been, um, you know, this has been such a, a talking point with the U S and um, I do think that there's, there's a couple things. I mean, one not worth dwelling on because it's, it's, it just doesn't uh, affect the here and now, but I, I think Macario is a big part of that conversation because we sure. saw that in the spring. And I think that her absence is, is further sort of context for more than one thing that we've talked about here. Um, but, you know, for, for the here and now, I, I do like, um, I, I know that there are people who disagree with me because of the, um, in theory, the, the defensive, um, vulnerabilities that it might present, which I, I'd actually disagree with to a degree. Um, but a, a double 10, as I like to call it, we can call it what you want, but Lavelle and Sanchez together, um, you know, yes, that perhaps leaves you slightly vulnerable or, or perhaps you need a certain type of defensive midfielder if you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was the game that we talked about against Jamaica. That was the central trio. It was Lavelle and Sanchez up top or sorry, not up top, but, you know, more advanced and Haran holding or more withdrawn. Um, and I think that is, you know, at least among this roster, that's probably, you know, I, the only one I could slot in there. Maybe if you're, if you're going to do that, you could say, well, Corniak could just be like a bruising ball winner maybe, but she's, she's not experienced in the role and, and maybe, or, you know, in this setting, and maybe that's, you know, a concern at this stage, certainly. But I think that, 
you know, this is, you know, you could track this back to 2016 of like not having a, a really true central playmaker on the dribble. Mm-hmm. And that was that expedited, you know, it was already happening or going to happen, but that expedited Rose Lavelle's introduction into this team. And, you know, I think you can talk similarly about Ashley Sanchez getting introduced into this team more after the most recent Olympics mm-hmm. and, and the two of them together um, being able to break down teams centrally, because you're right. I mean, you know, what, the crossing um, and, and Huerta in that right back role, I thought played a big role in that, but the crossing from wide areas was really effective against Jamaica. Mm-hmm. It's not always going to be effective against teams that can defend it. Um, is Costa Rica a team that can defend it with right. height and everything? I, you know, I don't know, but um, you know, I think centrally that's, that is the other element of, of the equation when you can't just rely on, surface in the box, you need combination play. And, and there's no, there are no two players, sorry, Macario excluded. So I'm going right. to exclude since she's injured. Sure. Otherwise there are no two players that are going to combine the way that they will centrally than Lavelle and Sanchez. All right. So I think I have two more questions, two more questions, big ones, because like I said, we have, there's going to be two games played between this recording and, and the next recording. By the time we get to next Tuesday, tournament will be over. There will be a winner. Um, So question number one is having looked at the group stage between, let's say, the two top contenders, right, between Canada and uh, and and the U.S., though Canada versus Jamaica intrigues me. I can't lie to you. Um, Who do you like the chances better of getting that that one guaranteed Olympic spot? Canada, Jamaica does intrigue me. I was more intrigued by Canada, Haiti until. Um, admittedly, I didn't see what happened because we were across sure, town and, and yeah, so I don't know exactly what happened there, but I was very surprised to see Haiti implode that way. Um, just based on the way they had played, but I think they were tired. If I had to yeah. guess, I think they, okay. they, yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I think, you know, U S Canada in general can be a toss up. I think there are times throughout the, the history, um, even recently, I mean, what was it? It was something it was, I don't have it in front of me, 20 straight years that, that it, you know, up until that Olympics, right. It was, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years since Canada had beaten the U S so maybe that's, you know, unfair to the U S to say it was a toss up, but you know, their closest opponent at times. I mean, I think this is a tournament that Canada can win. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, it's the U S trying to figure things out, Canada trying to as well, but maybe in a different place in that process, and, you know, I do think there is an intangible element of confidence that sure. they did it last year at the Olympics on the biggest stage and then finished the job in the gold medal game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they can look at how the U.S. is playing and, and maybe more so how teams are frustrating the U.S. and know they can not only do that, but then have more talent on the counter. Yes, um, I agree. That, that's a little unfair, actually, to, to maybe Haiti and Jamaica, at least individually with a DeMornay or Shaw, but, sure. you know, more um, combinations, and, maybe. Yeah. Going yeah, forward, more yeah. Abundance of talent on the, the counter. Yeah. Um, I think that they will like their chances. And, you know, if depending on what U S team we get in that game, assuming they get to it, assuming both teams get to it, which sure. we're, I think we're both making that assumption. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there are many ways that um, you could like Canada in that matchup right now. And, and it'll be super intriguing because then, you know, that puts, um, I don't want to dismiss the, what would be the playoff. Right. So this is, this is my next question. This is my last question. Okay. One of these two teams is not going to qualify for the Olympics. They can't both do it this week. Mm -hmm. It's going to be presented as a failure as well. It should, their expectations are high, right? And they want to beat the other team. They want to win. It's not in, in the grand context, right? Mm they're still playing CONCACAF competition in that playoff later. Right. And likely a team that they will have already seen. Right. Oh, depending on who wins the third place game. Mm -hmm. Is it a disaster if, if Canada or the United States, I mean, again, with the understanding that both of them can't, it can't be a disaster, right? Right. One of them is going to win, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's just like, I'm sure, you know, we were just talking about what's the difference between coverage in the U S and Canada. I mean, I'm sure if Canada is the the team to win this tournament that, you know, the world will be ending in the U S and there will be questions about 
everything under the sun, Vlaco otherwise. But yes, there is one automatic birth. And, you know, if we want to be like really frank, the second birth, um, you know, while it's left to perhaps the chance of a one-off playoff, you know, if you are either of Canada or the U.S., I mean, if you can't go beat Jamaica or Costa Rica in a one-off with, you know, your entire uh, sort of perfect appearance record on the line, then, uh, I mean, then you you have have bigger bigger problems problems than we thought. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, someone will present this as a disaster and we'll all get to dwell on it for over a year, which will be fun. But, (laughs) um, you know, I, I think, objectively from the outside looking at that game you've got to say unless something major changes in the next year with both programs participating in it that you know that is a game that that team should very much win and and be fine to go to the olympics but credit to Concacaf, i guess for giving us some extended fodder about um you know potential disasters maybe this is maybe this is the real last question um (laughs) you know Concacaf shook things up this year this is a whole new process of, of qualifying, um, obviously still very different from the men. They, they have these long preliminary rounds. You qualify for the finals through the preliminary rounds. Canada and the U S is the two highest ranked teams get buys into that final round. Both Canada and the U S do not lose a game, right? Um, they don't concede a goal. We're still seeing some of the imbalances in the region, but like you, like, like you said, they're, there's some added intrigue. They're trying to make it harder. They're trying to make it a little bit more of an extensive process. However, Canada and the U S qualified for the world cup, having played two games, which is pretty short, just worldwide to, to qualify for the world cup. Not that the U S and Canada would not have success game over game, but just the actual qualifying only taking two matches is, is pretty unique. I think in Europe, even if you have lopsided score lines, it's a longer process. Um, what did you think, Jeff, of, of what you've seen so far, not just in this round, but the preliminary rounds of how CONCACAF is trying to build the region up and make it a little bit more interesting while just understanding that they have two of the best teams in the world in their region. Yeah. Yeah. I'm torn, Claire. I I think, um, that it is a step. I don't want to call it a bandaid. I I think it's a step to have more pre-qualification let's call it and that mm-hmm. you know keeps some of these teams that otherwise might do nothing for three four years that that, that keeps them active and, and gives them competitive games and you know that as an end goal is is what it should be and is is a positive um you know i've i've kind of had this thing that's maybe a pipe dream but i feel like that is the the end needs to be the end game and it needs to be soon and i wanted it to be this cycle and knew it wouldn't be it's like I want to see these games, you know, I want to see the U S in Mexico more. I want to see them. I want to see them on the ropes in the first half hour against Haiti. Yeah. First 45 minutes against Haiti in Port-au-Prince, you know, with a crowd that I'm sure would be all over them in, you know, frankly, in, in hosting conditions that I think that, they very rarely are accustomed to as a team that is, you know, frankly, the best treated team in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, those are games I want to see. And I want to see that in a, an extended qualifying period where whether it's a hex or an octagon, you know, that they all play each other home and home. And I think that makes it tougher for the U S I think that is a benefit to, a team like Haiti, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I'm losing that argument the way Mexico performed at this tournament, but it's no, not set I, up in that exact way. I agree with you though. Cause I think that it's kind of my point about the European teams as well. It, it seems like CONCACAF is trying to protect some of the smaller, less supported teams from these preliminary games against the U S right. Or they're trying they're trying to build the competition up by keeping the U S and Canada out of it for as long as possible. And I think that, like you said, I think the U S and Canada should have to be in it. I think they should have to go through these same processes that the other teams have to go through because not, I actually genuinely believe it will make those teams better as well. I think it's a stronger region that way. Um, And yeah, you do have to suffer through. And like I said, we see this in Europe, we see 13 goal, 14 goal games. It does happen, but by by holding Canada and the U.S. out, I don't think that actually 
fixes what they're trying to fix as much. And well, yeah. it, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just, I think it's both though, right? Like yeah. you can do that pre-qual round that yeah. you withhold them and then get to this stage. Right. And, and make it and, longer. Yeah. Right. Instead of a two week tournament, do the, I mean, we're talking about if you did it as an octagon, so to speak, um, you know, you're talking about, I guess you're talking about 14 games then, but you know, if you, if you can get the calendar, right, you right. let, let those teams compete through that prequal. No, you don't need, you know, the U S playing Guyana in the first game of the entire cycle, but, right. um, you know, you can get them into this stage. And I think everybody would agree that that's fine and fair enough to just right. let them go into this final eight. And sure. then in the final eight, you've got them going to Haiti, you've got them going to Jamaica, to Mexico and, and those teams coming in. And, you know, I, I think that there is a better shot in a lot of ways, the, the home crowd, mm-hmm. um, the, the different advantages they would have. And frankly, like this is, we've got total, this tournament is 15 games in 15 days. Mm-hmm. It is 104 degrees here. Yeah. It is right. sweltering just to sit there and watch. Yeah. And, that is an advantage to the U S and Canada being far deeper teams. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think I agree with that. I think that it, I see the changes that they're trying to make. They're trying to ease into something that will hopefully be closer to what, what the men right. have to do. Um, cause yeah, and- like I said, it, it's not necessarily because I think the U S and Canada, um, will not have similar successes through that process, but I think they should have to go through it. Uh, and I think if you really, I mean, we even saw, you talked about how the biggest cheer uh, of, of the night was for Alex Morgan. There have been some really cool moments during this tournament being in Mexico, right? We saw um, Ashley Sanchez meet her former UCLA tournament or for UCLA teammate last night. Um, after the game, we saw, uh, you know, Alex Morgan meeting up with, uh, you know, a different former players in NWSL that she's seeing in Mexico. We've seen, it's just, I think that if you want to genuinely grow the game, I do think that there is an element of, of getting the U S in front of crowds and getting these home crowds out to support their team, um, that will make, make a difference. And, and again, like you said, not this year, but maybe in the future. So a lot to think about. Uh, we did not go into NWSL this weekend because there's just too much other stuff going on. We will revisit that uh, next weekend. Um, thank you, Jeff, for joining me. Uh, hopefully this upcoming week we'll have some more great games. We will have a winner next time and we'll be able to break all of that down next Tuesday. I've been your host, Claire Watkins. Shout out to our producer extraordinaire, Jacqueline Purdy and our distributor, Blue Wire Podcast. And we will be back with you next week.